Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Plays The Thing. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by Sarah Jane Bentley for Act 3 of William Shakespeare's Coriolanus. Welcome back to the show, Sarah Jane. How are you? I'm well, Tim. Things are as good as they can be over here in Britain. How are you? I'm doing very well. Also, the rumors over here are that the coronavirus shutdown are coming to a soft conclusion sometime this month. That's the rumor. That's the word. I think they might end with a whimper, not a bang. Uh Uh-huh. Not with a bang, but a whimper. It's the correct syntax of that, isn't it? Sorry, I mangled it. Is that T.S. Eliot? Yes. Yeah, the hollow man. He's the first. Yeah, he's the first. I didn't know if he stole that or if that was from him. Let's say Mm. it's, yeah, I'm going to agree with you. It's wonderful at the moment. Picnics are allowed, so... um, Really? People are out picnicking. Yeah. How Very lovely. sunny. Mm. Without masks on. Most people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Most people. Yeah. I wonder, did they have plagues in Rome? They must have. They must have. Surely they did. Mm. Maybe for Act 4, we should, we should find the most recent plague before Coriolanus's time, Caius Martius's time. Um, Yes, because there's so much imagery of pestilence yeah. and plague and sickness in the play, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot. So, Sarah Jane, I, I want to do something a little bit different for this show. I kind of want to start us off by doing a little contrast and compare between two actors who both played Coriolanus. Logan is going to kind of play a couple of these clips for us. So I want to do the same lines from Coriolanus, and I want to do them side by side. And I also want to... The reason that I would like to do this is because I just think it's always good for us to remember that these texts that we're discussing were first plays, they're still plays, and 
I have seen shows, I have seen Shakespeare performances, and I've walked out and I've thought, gosh, I didn't really like that very much. That wasn't a very good play. And then I would see the same play performed by a different director and different actors a year later, five years later, and think, wow, what did I miss the first time? And I might not have missed anything. It might have just been, it wasn't a great performance. The two um, scenes that I want to play, I think both of the actors, they're both very strong. They would not have had these audio recordings made of them if they were not strong actors. But I just think that the second, performed by Alan Howard, is one of the most electric things I've ever seen or heard in my life. Um, and I want, coming out of discussing those two clips, I want to talk to you about when you're in the position of an audience member and you aren't quite sure how to track the language because it's dense, it's complex, it's Shakespearean, it's 500 years old, what do you do? So that's one of the questions that I'm going to ask you after we get done playing these two clips. So to recap, Act 3, Coriolanus has been invited to the Senate after he has showed his wounds to the people. He... Um, does not enjoy this task, but he has completed it, shows up the Senate, fully expecting to be given the role of consul, but he discovers that the tribunes again have been plotting against him, the representatives of the people have been plotting against him, and they do not want to give him the consulship because he kind of was maybe not um, generous enough in his greetings with the people and so they are undermining him. So the clips that we're going to hear are from Coriolanus petitioning the noble senators to not listen to the tribunes and to not give equal voice to the people. So I'm not going to name the first actor, um, but let's just hear these two clips side by side. Could I as patient as the midnight sleep by Jove, t'would be my mind. It is a mind that shall remain a poison where it is, not poison any further. Shall remain? Hear you this triton of the minnows. Mark you his absolute shall. Plus from the cannon. Shall? Oh, good but most unwise patricians. Why, you grave but reckless senators, have you thus given Hydra here to choose an officer? But with his peremptory shall, being but the horn and noise of the monsters, once not spirit to say he'll turn your current in a ditch and make your channel his. If he have power, then veil your ignorance. If none, awake your dangerous lenity. If you are learned, be not as common fools. If you are not, let them have cushions by you. You are plebeians, if they be senators, and they are no less when both your voices blended, the greats taste most pallets theirs. They choose their magistrate, and such a one as he, who puts his shall, his popular shall, against a graver bench than ever frowned in Greece. By Jove himself, it makes the consul's base. My soul aches to know when two authorities are up, neither supreme, how soon confusion may enter twixt the gap of both and take the one by the other. Sarah Jane, what I appreciate about that performance is that the actor is very clear. I hear all the words. Uh, he takes his time. He articulates every word. And, and it's, this, it's this argument that he's building. And I feel like I can 
track as dense as the argument is, as complex as the material is, I can track what's going on. Now, I want to play another clip. This is the Alan Howard clip. Same language, um, excuse me, same part of the text. And let's just hear how Alan Howard plays this. It's going to be different. What I as patient as the midnight sleep by Jove to be my mind. It is a mind that shall remain a poison where it is, not poison any further. Shall remain Hear you this triton of the minnows. Mark you his absolute shall. Twas from the cannon. Shall! All good, but most unwise, patricians. Why, you grave but reckless senators. Have you thus given Hydra here to choose an officer that with his peremptory shall, being but the horn and noise of the monsters, wants not spirit to say he'll turn your current in a ditch and make your channel his? If he have power, then veil your ignorance. If none, awake your dangerous lenity. You are plebeians if they be senators, and they are no less when both your voices blended the great taste most palates theirs. They choose their magistrate, and such a one as he, who puts his shall, his popular shall, against a graver bench than ever found in Greece. By Jove himself it makes the consul's base. And my soul aches to know, when two authorities are up, neither supreme, how soon confusion may enter twixt the gap of both and take the one by the other. So that was Alan Howard playing the same text as we heard before. For me, um, the choices that he makes, I I am so riveted by that scene, by Alan Howard in that scene. I've probably watched it 50 times. I showed it to friends of mine last night and I played the first clip for them. They were like, oh, that guy's a really great voice. And then I played the Alan Howard clip and they said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Like he he is terrifying. (laughs) He is, he's terrifying. So powerful. And he knows the words, he articulates the words, but he moves swiftly. It's like the emotion carries those lines forward more than the first actor who seemed most intent on making sure that his audience understood what was being said. I appreciate both of those, but I have to admit I am so drawn to that second way of playing it, but it presents a problem, Sarah Jane. The problem is the speed sometimes makes it uh, uncomprehendable to us, Mm. difficult to follow. It does. Let's think about which of the actors have given a better rendition of Coriolanus at this point. Mm. Um, Alan Howard's is slightly faster, I think, because he has cut some of the lines. So that does mm. obviously accelerate him towards that crescendo of when two authorities are up. Right, um, right. Slightly quicker than the other one. Um, Shakespeare's amazing uh, in that he doesn't write a lot of stage directions. You very rarely get them. Maybe it, it wasn't customary to do that. We know that the texts of the plays that are handed on to us aren't always perfect. Um, recordings of, of what he wrote. Um, so as an actor and a director, you have to look to what the characters are saying to figure out 
the tone and, and the, yes, the mood of the right. scene. So here we, we know that Coriolanus is furious and Menenius refers to his collar. So in that sense, collar meaning, you know, choleric, extreme anger. In yeah. that sense, I think Alan Howard has captured the character better here because he, you're right, he's, he's raging in a torrent of words because he's furious mm-hmm. that these, these nobodies, these tribunes would dare to step out of proper parliamentary procedure and tell him what he should or should not do. They have no authority to do that. They can only speak on behalf of the people. And here they've said, no, you can't, you can't go and talk to the people again and, and make your corn speech. And he says, what? Yes. You can't right. tell me what to do. And of right. course, he's furious. He's shed blood for Rome. And these two um, politicians are, are trying to take control of him. So now to your question, which is, what do we do as an audience when the iambic pentameter sort of trips along too quickly for us to really catch it? Well, yeah, right. I think, you know, as you were saying before you played the clips, the, the, the beauty of drama is that it is the highest art form. So a play is a living thing and it is an ephemeral thing. You're there and you see it that night and it will never be the same again. And I think it's Aristotle that says it's the highest art form in that sense, because it's, it's living people saying the words. And so we have to remember that the words are not the only thing that you're experiencing in the theater. And so much can be conveyed by well choreographed, um, action, movement, where people are standing on the stage, volume, lighting. Yes. So we don't. We can often forget what a difference that makes when we're just reading the text in a schoolroom or at home teaching our children. Um, you know the difference it can make where a character leaves or enters the scene. So I think that Shakespeare is aware of that. That that words are his medium, but there's also the visual aspect of, of right. the production. The other thing is that Shakespeare is very kind to his audience and is so talented in the way that he writes for all levels. He pitches to the king down to the groundlings. And so very often when something complex is, is being conveyed in long rhetoric, Shakespeare will then in one sentence, either at the beginning or at the end of that speech, tell the audience in basic language what just happened, which I'm very grateful to him for a lot of the time. Yes. Um, And so that crescendo at the end of the speech, by Jove, my soul aches to know when two authorities are up, is is very easy to understand. Uh So even if you've missed all of what went before, you get the sense, okay, Coriolanus is really angry at the tribunes and he's angry at them because he doesn't like the sense that there's divided strength here because that will lead ultimately to weakness and to the crows coming in to peck at the eagle of Rome. So don't worry about it, I would say, to the audience <laughs> who's struggling. Just let it wash over you and absorb what you can and go and see it again and Go and see it again. That, that's really helpful, Sarah Jane, that Shakespeare has this habit that when he gives a long speech to a character, there's oftentimes a summary statement at the conclusion. And so if you can't track what Coriolanus just said, but you can hang in there 
like understand kind of emotionally the impact, the, the import of what the character is saying, but hang in there till the end. By Jove himself, it makes the consul's base and my soul aches to know. When two authorities are up, neither supreme, how soon confusion may enter twixt the gap of both and take the one by the other. Mm. So right there, he's just given a summary of what he's been saying all throughout this kind of torrent of mm. angry words. Which is all about the, the, um, the balance of power. That, that's what the scene is about. And the other thing that Shakespeare does um, sometimes is that at the end of an act, he might often begin the, the next act with a couple of characters like messengers or people in the street who will just, for the yes. audience, recap yes. what happened. They will be, have you heard the news? So-and-so has come to town and he has forgotten that his sister is... And it's, it's so brilliant that he does that too. So if you, say, came into the theatre late, you often notice yeah. the beginning of maybe act one, scene four, Shakespeare would just go back to the start of the play, recap what's happened so far for the latecomers in the action of the play. He's just, a, he's just so considerate of his audience. He, he obviously cares about people. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll see a great example of what you're talking about at the beginning of act four, which we'll discuss next week, a messenger um, in Coriolis among the Volskis kind of recounts what has happened in Rome, this kind of like rebellion within Rome. Um, that we're discussing today in Act Three. That's so. You're right. So hold on to the end of the monologues, even if you can't follow every word. Hang on for the end, and you'll usually get a, a summary statement. And if you get lost, oftentimes at the beginning of a scene, or especially the beginning of an act, there'll be a recap given to you. Um, by so be, oh, by yeah. minor characters who normally speak in blank verse right. and simple right. language. Uh, sorry, speaking prose, not in verse. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. There's one other thing to Very say helpful. as well, which might be yeah. helpful, is that Shakespeare's writing for an audience, many of whom would have read North's translation of Plutarch, where the, the thread of this story is laid bare. So he's, he's writing for an audience who already know the story, some of them, probably most of them, um, and they know what will happen to Coriolanus. And so there are some audience members who are actually looking at how Shakespeare has changed and adapted what Plutarch has done. And maybe that's something we could talk a little bit about in a, in a later episode. Well, let's, I, I wouldn't mind talking about now at least who Plutarch was. I think that would be, um, <laughs> I'm laughing because, um, both Sarah Jane and I are feeling a little bit ill-equipped, so we're going to do a shallow dive, not a deep dive here, Sarah Jane. So Plutarch is a Greek, maybe even Macedonian, if I recall correctly, historian, and he's famous for writing brief biographies. So most of the information that we have about Coriolanus comes from Plutarch's life of Coriolanus. What's interesting about well, it's, Plutarch... it's lives of the noble Grecians and Romans, isn't it? Right. And there are right. short chapters on each character. And I think, you know, they're, they're short. They're like three to 500 words long. And they're, I think they are so, they're a great, great teaching tool because what Plutarch really focuses on is sort of like the, the inner life of the person, what motivate him, what is their moral stance in the world. And the other thing, fascinating thing about Plutarch is that he will compare 
a great Greek with a great Roman. So the comparison with Coriolanus, the Roman, is Alcibiades, a great Greek general who is also friends with Socrates. Both men, so the reason for the comparison is that both men fled their native land. Alcibiades left Athens. Coriolanus, of course, left Rome, and they turned back and marched on their kind of mother city. Um, but Alcibiades and Coriolanus, in, in some ways, they were both great generals, but they almost could not be further apart. Alcibiades was slippery. You hardly knew, like, you hardly believed a word that he was saying, where Coriolanus, the man almost to his well, to his to his demise, cannot speak anything but the truth. That's true, but the people don't believe anything he says. They don't. Right, they don't. That's fascinating. So, I didn't know that. That's um, just just to make a teaching point here. I think yeah. you know, if you're teaching in a classical style, going to Plutarch is a great way to bring classics, history, English, theatre all together in in one beautiful seamless lesson and boys would love it oh absolutely and another kind of teaching point is i love how the more you're like our understanding of the western canon the deeper we get in our understanding of the western canon we start to see recurrent we start to see characters pop up in different places so for example Alcibiades shows up in Plato's dialogues, most famously in the symposium, the discussion of love. Um, he shows up in Plutarch's lives also. In Coriolanus also, he just pops up among these other historians and philosophers and Shakespeare um, dramatists. And it's great because you get, you get to see these characters, these really live human beings. They lived and walked mm. on the earth. They're not just kind of historical cardboard cutouts. No. Do you know what I, real characters. I find fascinating also that they are they are kind of types. I think when you have a vision or an understanding like Shakespeare, he knows something about human beings that that is timeless. And so I worked for General Petraeus once, and I often think of him as as Coriolanus, this huh. amazing general, um, so disciplined. Uh, physically peerless, really. He was an amazing runner. He was so strong, uh, um, uh. super intelligent. And then he, after the war, he came back to America and, and was kind of involved in politics in a more civilian role. And he just, it just went wrong for him. Mm. He wasn't equipped for that. And um, I always think of General Petraeus as Coriolanus. I don't know if that's fair. Right. Have huge right. respect for him, of course, as, as a leader. What an interesting comparison because General Petraeus, I'm sure, had to collaborate with other generals and other people who served under him. But in a hierarchical system like the military, he gets to make decisions and ensure that they're followed through. I think but as well. Into the political realm. Say, go ahead. Well, in that specific context, he was the one in charge of that particular mission. So it was. General Petraeus was in charge. And then um, it was for a, a finite time. I think it's three years. And then 
swaps and you get a different general coming in. So yeah. he did really have total authority over the that section of the military for that project, the same as Coriolanus. And, and, and to go to that place of total authority and then to have to kind of submit yourself to the democratic process. I mean, we see it mm-hmm. in Coriolanus. It's infuriating. I'm sure it's, you know, for General Petraeus, it was like wildly inefficient. We know mm-hmm. what the right thing to do is. Why do we have to kind of cater to these other interests that don't understand necessarily like what the best maneuver is? I'm sure I've never been in that situation, but I can just imagine that would be a psychologically very taxing change to make. Mm. And so to complete the circle, really, we need uh, a Plutarch of our day to document these biographies (laughs) in a neat 500 words. Wouldn't that be great? Mm. That's a great project for you. Can you get started on that? I don't know if I'm a very good biographer. Um, one thing I noticed, uh, Sarah Jane, in um, this middle section, Act 3, is the way that Coriolanus speaks as contrasted with the way that Brutus and Sicinius speak, the tribunes. Coriolanus uses I statements. He says, I will do, I have done, I believe, and... Sicinius and Brutus hardly ever speak for themselves. They're always cajoling people to um, say this or say that, or they're um, referencing what someone else said. And so really, I mean, I wish that I had time to kind of just go through and circle the number of personal pronouns that Brutus and um, Sicinius use. I bet it's very few. So let me give you an example from Coriolanus, how often he uses that personal pronoun I in his speech. So this is 3 1, uh, line 20, 68, roughly. Now, as I live, I will. My nobler friends, I crave their pardons. For the mutable, rank scented many, let them regard me as I do not flatter, and therein behold themselves. I say again, in soothing them, we nourish against our Senate the cockle of rebellion, insolence, sedition. Okay, so now, fast forward, uh, maybe half the scene, or excuse me, two scenes to 3-1, three, sorry, to 3-3, three, three, lines 11 through 23. This is Brutus. He's speaking to the people. In this point, charge him home that he affects tyrannical power. If he evade us there, enforce him with his envy to the people. And that will, and, and that the spoil got on the Antennes was ne'er disturbed. Okay, so skipping down a little bit more, Sicinius, assemble presently the people hither. And when they hear me say, it shall be so, in the right and strength of the commons, be it either for death, for fine or banishment, let them... If I say fine, cry fine. If death, cry death, insisting on the old prerogative. So the tribunes are constantly kind of like trafficking in what other people say, whereas Coriolanus, he's only concerned about what he says and what he believes. And I, I find myself, I wonder what you think, Sarah Jane. I both respect that 
And it's also a little bit worrisome. I respect that he's so willing to speak for himself. Um, his inability to recognize others is part of the problem. Is that right? Yeah. I think this is a great question that we can spend a while picking apart because yeah. it gets to the heart of Coriolanus's character. And just stepping back to Plutarch a sec, in, if I remember rightly in Plutarch's account, Volumnia has other children. So Coriolanus is a, has siblings. Shakespeare makes Coriolanus an only child. And right. we get the sense, don't we, from his relationship with his mother that he has had all of her hope and pride poured into him from day one. And so he behaves like an only child, I think, in the play. Yes, That he's he never does. had to compromise. Um, his mother has always praised him, whether he likes it or not. And so he has that, that sort of confidence. I'm sorry for, to only children, I'm sure. <laughs> that was a terrible um, <laughs> slight. Um, not all only children are like that, of course. But I think that this, this particular only child who has been brought up by Volumnia, it seems to behave in a way that, as you say, is almost oblivious to the existence of other people, that his will is more important than anyone else's. So yes. I think that's a dramatic point that Shakespeare makes because of the way he's adapted Plutarch. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting that we were discussing is that although we get all these first-person statements from Coriolanus, we never get a private insight into the psychology of his character because he's one of the few protagonists in Shakespeare who doesn't have any soliloquies at all in the play. And perhaps you could- He has no soliloquies at all. Uh, yeah. And perhaps as an actor, you could explain what a soliloquy is. <laughs> I'm going to be real candid here. Um, our audience should know that before we started this podcast, Sarah Jane made the point that Coriolanus had no, has no soliloquies. And I, the supposed, like, you know, non-amateur was like, Sarah Jane, remind me, what's the difference between a soliloquy? Um, I, I, I totally wasn't going to reveal that, but you've... I know, no, I know, I know, because <laughs> you're a kind and generous person and you, but I wanted to be honest because... Yeah, I think sometimes I kind of like, you know, purport to be a little bit of an expert on this show. And I, there are oftentimes like just big gaps, like really things that should be really obvious that I just don't know. So listeners should um, take comfort. If they don't know the difference between a soliloquy and a monologue either, they're not alone. But it's, so this is, so now I'm going to speak with the voice of Sarah Jane. A soliloquy is a character on stage alone by himself and who is he speaking to? Well, ostensibly, he's speaking to us, the audience. But really, he's oftentimes having discussion with himself about what he thinks about a particular event, person, you know, future event. Uh, a famous example would be Macbeth thinking to himself what he is going to do when Duncan, the king, comes under his battlements. And, and Macbeth has an internal dialogue in which he says, basically, gosh, if I got rid of the king, I would be king. But we know it's wrong for this reason and this reason and this reason. Thus, I'm not going to kill the king until Lady Macbeth shows up and convinces him otherwise. We don't, and this is all your insight, Sarah Jane, we 
don't have a single soliloquy, a single time where Coriolanus is on stage discussing something with himself, which is kind of shocking. It's it's really interesting as well. If if you, I think you have, and listeners watch the Fines film, Fines edits edits Coriolanus's exile in such a way as to give him a kind of soliloquy because we hear certain lines spoken as um, as a voiceover in his head. He's going over conversations with his mother, which make it sound like he's sort of deeply perturbed. Whereas, of course, uh-huh, in the uh-huh. play. These are conversations that are acted out on the stage, often in public. So it's interesting how Fines tries to, and, and indeed does, add depth, a psychological depth to Coriolanus to make him seem more twisted and embittered. Yes, right, right. So, yeah, why do you think then that the tribunes so rarely use the first-person pronoun? The the first reason is, I think, a little less interesting. They're the representatives of the people. I think even if they they weren't the representatives of the people, they are the sort of people who do not have the kind of spine to say, "I believe," "I submit," "I want," and and um, Menenius charges them with this uh, in the last act. He basically says, there's nothing, you can't do anything on your own. You never do anything on your own. And it's a great slur that he's pronouncing upon them that they don't choose to act on their own. Again, it's just such a brilliant contrast by our playwright that he sets these two types of people in such sharp contrast. And of course, we know there's no way that they can resolve Coriolanus and the Tribunes can never resolve. Their their entire worlds are kind of trafficked in language that the each that the other doesn't understand. Yeah, it's interesting as well, isn't it? That it it detracts from them as as characters. Really, Brutus and Sicinius seem strikingly incomplete in comparison do, to they? Coriolanus because they don't, as you say, have. A character of their own. They they're, they're sort of rumor mongers. They echo what other people have said. They they mm-hmm. cause people to echo what they have said, and um, it's very difficult to know them. They yes. they they don't have any facets to their character. They really they're are just sh- voices. They're shadows. Mm. They're shadows of a of a real thing. I mean, the real thing, I guess, would be the people, and they just kind of are. Um, they're attempting to represent those people. But yeah, I, I think part of why this play is so compelling to me is because unlike some of some like, unlike Shakespeare's other tragedies where there's a very, there's an embodied enemy, a single opponent um, that the main character will either overcome or be done in by this play is Coriolanus versus a crowd. Mm. And a mm. crowd which is beastly, like a hydra that yeah, you cut like one head off, another one grows. It's um, capricious, unpredictable. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I wonder if there's a comparison to be made, as you were speaking about Macbeth, between the witches and the tribunes, in a sense that they turn their words back on themselves, they, they twist. Yeah. 
they twist the truth, they tell a half truth and then reveal something more later. In, in some ways they are, um, they kind of play a role like the Greek, what I, like I imagine what the Greek chorus would play in Greek tragedies. They, they speak for, I'm thinking especially of the Roman people. They speak for what is um, the populace. Oftentimes the Greek chorus speaks not just for the people, but also speaks for the kind of tradition and customs of the city. And it's oftentimes a voice, the chorus's voice um, is a voice of wisdom, a voice of kind of history stepping onto the stage. Shakespeare, though, maybe he does kind of borrow a little bit of the idea from the chorus, but I think in this play, his vision of the people is not one of wisdom of kind of cherished traditions, but like you said, it's the many headed Hydra. Sarah Jane, uh, there's a clip I'd like to play of Volumnia. This play is full of rhetoric. And by rhetoric, I mean public speeches intended to convince sway, change the mind. And I wonder if Volumnia might be the best of the best of them all. She is exceptionally powerful and convincing and intelligent in her speech. Let's listen to this clip um, and hear, hear how she weaves her words. I muse my mother does not approve me further, who was wont to call them woolen vassals, things created to buy and sell with groats, to show bare heads in congregations, to yawn, be still and wonder when but one of my ordinance stood up to speak of peace or war. I talk of you. Why did you wish me milder? Would you have me false to my nature? Rather say I play the man I am. Oh, sir, sir, sir. I would have had you put your power well on before you had worn it out. Let go. You might have been enough the man you are with striving less to be so. Lesser had been the thwarting of your dispositions if you had not showed them how you were disposed ere they lacked power to cross you. Let them hang. I am burned too. Come, come, you have been too rough. Something too rough. You must return and mend it. There's no remedy, unless by not so doing, our good city cleave in the midst and perish. Pray be counseled. I have a heart as little apt as yours, but yet a brain that leads my use of anger to better vantage. Well said, noble woman. Before he should thus stoop to the herd, but that the violent fit of the time craves it as physic for the whole state, I would put mine armor on, which I can scarcely bear. What must I do? Return to the tribunes. Well, what then? What then? Repent what you have spoke. For them! I cannot do to the gods. Must I then do to them? You are too absolute. Though therein you can never be too noble, but when extremities speak. I have heard you say, honor and policy, like unsevered friends in the war, do grow together. Grant that. And tell me in peace what each of them but the other lose that they combine not there. Tash, tash. Good demand. If it be honor in your wars to seem the same you are not, which for your best ends you adopt your policy, how is it less or worse that it should hold companionship in peace with honor as in war, since that to both it stands in like request? Why force you this? Because that now it lies on you to speak to the people, not by your own instruction, nor with the matter which your heart prompts you, but with such words that are but roted in your tongue, though but bastards and syllables of no allowance to your bosom's truth. Now, this no more dishonors you at all than to take in a town with gentle words, which else would put you to your fortune and the hazard of much blood. I would dissemble with my nature where my fortunes and my friends at stake required I should do so in honor. I am in this, your wife, your son, these senators, the nobles, 
and you would rather show our general louts how you can frown than spend a fawn upon them for the inheritance of their loves and safeguard of what that want might ruin. Noble lady, come go with us. Speak fair. You may salve so not what is dangerous present, but the loss of what is past. I prithee now, my son, go to them with this bonnet in thy hand. And thus far having stretched it, here be with them, thy knee bussing the stones. For in such business, action is eloquence, and the eyes of the ignorant more learned than the ears. Waving thy head, with often thus correcting thy stout heart, now humble as the ripest mulberry that will not hold the hand. Say to them, thou art their soldier, and being bred in broils, hast not the soft way, which thou dost confess were fit for thee to use, as they to claim in asking their good loves. But thou wilt frame thyself forsooth hereafter theirs, so far as thou hast power and person. This but done, even as she speaks, why their hearts were yours, for they have pardons being asked as free as words to little purpose. Prithee now, go and be ruled. Although I know thou'dst rather follow thine enemy in a fiery gulf than flatter him in a bower. Here is Cominius. I have been in the marketplace. Answer, tis fit you make strong party or defend yourself by calmness or by absence. All's in anger. Only fair speech. I think twill serve if he can thereto frame his spirit. He must and will. Pretty now say you will and go about it. Must I go show them my unbarbed sconce? Must I with my base tongue give to my noble heart a lie that it must bear? Well, I will do it. If were they but this single plot to lose, this mould of marshes, they to dust should grind it and throw it against the wind. To the marketplace. You will put me now to such a part which never I shall discharge to the life. Come, come, we'll prompt you. I prithee now, sweet son. As thou hast said, my praises made thee first a soldier. So to have my praise for this, perform a part thou hast not done before. Well... I must do it. Away my disposition and possess me some harlot spirit. My throat of war be turned which quiet with my drum into a pipe, small as an eunuch, or the virgin voice that babies lull asleep. The smiles of knaves tent in my cheeks, and schoolboys' tears take up the glasses of my sight. A beggar's tongue make motion through my lips, and my armed knees, who bowed but in my stirrup, bend like his that hath received an arms. I will not do it! Lest I cease to honor mine own truth, and by my body's action teach my mind a most inherent baseness. At thy choice, then. To beg of thee it is my more dishonor than thou of them. Come all to ruin. Let thy mother rather feel thy pride than fear thy dangerous stoutness. For I mock a death with as big heart as thou. Do as thou list. Thy valiantness was mine, thou suckst it from me. But oh, thy pride, thyself. Pray be content. Mother, I'm going to the marketplace. Chide me no more. Mother, I'm going to the marketplace. Chide me no more. She, she convinces him, doesn't she? What makes her so good? What makes her so good? What we've just listened to is a sort of the, the crescendo of a, an argument that's been going on throughout the whole scene. And you, you were talking about Volumnia as a great rhetorician. She uses this, this three-part structure of privy, which is a, a word which means I, I pray you, mm. I, I beseech you. Mm. And she first flatters him for his nobility and says, look, 
why don't you use um, the same tactics that you would in war in this time of peace to get what you want? She says it's not dishonourable in war to use a strategy or a policy. Um, and so that's her first sort of onslaught. Which is a great, which is a great strategy. You're so noble. You're really successful at doing this. Why don't you just do it now? That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. The second time, she says, you're my warrior. And everything you do is to win my praise. So do it for me. I prithee. To have my praise for this, she says, go and do as I say. And she actually directs him. She tells him like an act, a director to an actor how to hold his hat, mm. how to speak his words. Um, and that doesn't work either. He says, no, you're being contradictory. Why would you have me be something that I'm not? You've made me this person mm. and now you're telling me to move away. So the one, then the third time, she just absolutely loses it. <laughs> she does. My choice. And she says, you know, basically, I'm your mother. You will do as I tell you. And he does. <laughs> Which is why we get that titter from the audience, because this, this uh, puissant general says, mother, I am going. <laughs> Chide me no more. <laughs> so she, I think one thing that makes her so brilliant as a persuasive rhetorician is that she's able to change her line of argument every time and she covers every different angle so that by the end of her strategic speech, Coriolanus has got nowhere to go. He's boxed in. He's got to go out the door to the marketplace. Uh-huh. That's uh-huh. it. She's, she's persuaded him. And um, he knows what's happening because halfway through the scene, he says, why force you this? Why are you making me do this? Uh-huh. And she does it again at the end of the play, which I'm sure we'll look at in more detail. Where he says, "Are you sure? Do you know what you've done? Why have you forced right. this? Look at what the outcome is." Right. Um. So, I think she's the most incredible mother, and she could she could be a military leader. She could. <laughs> mm. She could. A question that we will discuss in Act Five, I think, should be whether or not Volumnia is the only rhetorician in the play that convinces someone. So looking forward a little bit, um, she will be given a task by the Senate and it's a life or death task for herself, for her daughter-in-law, for her grandson. So we won't spoil alert it too much, but, but she does have, she will have a great task in front of her in act five. And what's amazing is that, in, at this point, she persuades him in one direction and he submits. And at the end of the play, she persuades him in the opposite mm-hmm. direction and he submits. Mm-hmm. So it shows how his mother can make him sway in any direction. <laughs> I love that she just basically concludes in the clip we just heard. Her, her kind of closing argument is basically, because I said so. It's like the child's least favorite argument and like the parents like last resort argument. Why can't I have, you know, another piece of string cheese? Because I said so. Yes. It's, it's worse than that though. It's like, let's go with that analogy. Of yeah. Your, your parents telling you eat your dinner. You must, because it's good for you. I made it for you. It tastes really good. You'll enjoy it. And finally have it your way. Don't eat your dinner. Stop. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's not just because I said so it's, I'm actually going to give you what you want. Yeah. 
And, and in the film with fines, at that point, she brings the standard of Rome and nearly smacks him over the head with a flag and, and shoves the standard, the military standard of Rome on him. And he's sort of standing there going, oh, right. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So when she says, do thy will, later, a couple of seconds later, we, we, there's a great irony there because, of course, he's not doing his will at all. <laughs> yeah, right. He's doing hers. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe I need to take some uh, mothering tips from Bologna. <laughs> we'll, ask, we'll ask Elizabeth <laughs> what she thinks of that. Yes. <laughs> Have it your way, then. You know best. <laughs> Two things that I want to talk about before we close the show, Sarah Jane. There's a lot of discussion or a lot of metaphorical um, allusions to the body and sicknesses upon or within the body in this play. Um, the body politic is what's being discussed, and Coriolanus is oftentimes compared to, by the tribunes, a sickness, a sickness that has infected the body. And likewise, Coriolanus kind of replies in turn, doesn't he? He accuses the people of being a sort of sickness in his speech. Mm. There's an interesting debate going on throughout the play between Coriolanus and the tribunes Mm. as to, and also Menenius is involved in this, as to who constitutes which part of this body politic of Rome. So in that speech we listened to that Menenius gave early in Act 1, Menenius says the patricians, the Senate, are the stomach. Yes. Coriolanus sees the people as the stomach. Um, Coriolanus is described as a limb, maybe something like a, an arm be- bearing a weapon that could be cut off. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, the tribunes are the mouth that speak with this multitudinous tongue that needs to, Coriolanus says, needs to be cut off because it's poisoned. They say, see, say he is a limb that's gone gangrenous and needs to be cut off or the whole body will rot. Yes. Um, so it's, it's interesting. There's this competition as to who, who actually is the stomach, who, who's digesting all the grain of Rome. Coriolanus sees the people as this, um, monstrous stomach that the more you feed it, the more it will eat. And he's got this idea that if they're given corn gratis, they will just demand more and more and more, and they are insatiable and they will eat Rome up altogether. Mm. Um, Menenius says that the stomach is actually the, the kind of discernment of the patricians, how they consume all the corn and then they give out the best bits and, and kind of filter out the chaff and they just feed the people with this, this rich, nutritious um, grain. But it's not clear in the play exactly who is right because by the end, we see that Rome does devour her own children And it's not clear whether that's because it's the people who do that or whether it's the patricians that do that. Yeah. But there's, there's a lot of imagery in the play of hunger, starvation, and cannibalism. Uh-huh. And so if you compare it to something like Antony and Cleopatra, say, which was being written at the same time as yes. this, and Macbeth, all, all around the same time, Antony and Cleopatra is full of feasting. And there's always food and drink 
in the scenes and it's quite joyful, especially, especially in Egypt, but also in Rome. Um, there's that scene on the boat where they're all having a party yeah. and drinking yeah. Lepidus, Antony and Caesar. Um, but Coriolanus, this is the early Republic of Rome. It is a place that is starved. It's hungry and it's um, it's ready to fight. Yes. And I think it's an interesting parallel that Shakespeare draws between Imperial Rome and Republican Rome. Yeah, right. Imperial Rome is um, kind of flabby. Uh-huh. Um, what's the word? Sated. Um, yes. Um, I've forgotten the word. The Greek word that means, you know, you just love to eat and drink all the time. And you don't care at all. It's about maybe corpulent. Um, no, I. We'll think of it as soon as we end the podcast. I'm sorry, no, 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 it's I'm great. Mean. It's great. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I just think that's an interesting parallel: Imperial Rome in Shakespeare's plays, and then yes, hungry, hard, hungry for it, Republican Rome. And I'm not sure which which Rome is better. Neither of them come off particularly well. Uh-huh. I think Shakespeare shows that there are flaws to Roman society. And I think one of... Perhaps holding up the golden age of of the Renaissance as this rebirth of the classical era, but in a better way, that it's superior, that his own culture is superior to this one that they are drawing on. He he was a very sophisticated historian, a really sophisticated story. And it's sometimes a little bit difficult to detect where his point of view is. We've talked on the show about he equivocates. He recognizes that he is speaking to nobles and to kings and to queens, and his life is at stake if he makes a wrong move, or at least his livelihood would be at stake. And so he is oftentimes accused of equivocating, but I think the more that you study the plays, you can see his convictions, they, sh- they shine through sometimes. And he has convictions about both, like you were saying, the Roman Republic and Imperial Rome. You're, yeah, the word equivocating, remi- it reminded me the word I was looking for is Epicurean. Oh, yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Sorry for forgetting that. Um, you're right, though. It's so hard to track Shakespeare's politics because the other thing is he's writing for different patrons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Elizabeth I's idea of what was acceptable in the theatre and, and what her politics um, revolved around is, is completely different to James I. Yes. And so he's, he's always ducking and weaving. I, I always get to the end of um, Julius Caesar and I think about Brutus and I think, what did Shakespeare think about Brutus? Did, did he, was it a noble act, the killing of Caesar and the attempt to preserve the Republic? Or mm. was it, was he guilty of a sort of egotism that he accused Caesar of? And I genuinely don't know. And I think I might get to the end of this play. We'll talk about this in act five and think, does Shakespeare think that Coriolanus is this sort of blade that, um, that, that, uh, does he respect Coriolanus? I'll just say it like that. Does he respect Coriolanus and kind of think of him as sort of a, a necessary evil or something like that? It's difficult to know, but I think to an extent, Coriolanus is James the first. Mm-hmm. He is the hero. Mm-hmm. And so on a, on one level, he's almost shown to be superior 
to everyone around him so good that he has to be sacrificed. Yes. Um, but then, of course, it's never that um, blunt with Shakespeare. And, and you're right, there are ways in which, of course, Coriolanus is a highly critical character who we, we don't admire in other ways. Right. right. But he's put, in, he's put enough contemporary detail in here for James to identify himself with Coriolanus. That's really fascinating that we talked about that a little bit last week and I was not aware of mm. that. That's. It's actually here in act three, scene three. Um, if we look at the very end of the scene, the word mildly is there one, two, three, uh-huh. four, five uh-huh. times, five uh-huh. times in what? 10 lines. Mm-hmm. So the significance of this word mildly is that it was exactly this word that was given in council to James the first really when he had to go and speak to parliament about his, um, profligate spending during the corn riots. Really? So, so James the first would have heard that word and it would have had a really weighty significance to him. Um, and perhaps also it was something that, that his advisors and other aristocracy in the audience would have known about that this little word mildly might have made the King laugh. I wonder, Sarah Jane, if we could read those lines. So maybe you could be Cominius and Meninius, starting with 140. So this is at the end of 3-2. Cominius and Meninius are trying to prepare Coriolanus to go again, face the tribunes, this time with the people in a public setting. Let's just read to the end of the scene. Away. The tribunes do attend you. Arm yourself to answer mildly, for they are prepared with accusations, as I hear, more strong than are upon you yet. The word is mildly. Pray you, let us go. Let them accuse me by invention. I will answer in mine honor. Aye, but mildly. Well, mildly be it, then mildly. I wonder if the actor ought play that mildly with a bit of scorn, or that, that's an interesting actor's choice yes Tiddleston does he he's very oh, does sarcastic he? Does he? Mm. I want to close with this Sarah Jane 3-3 three, three. Um, Coriolanus is banished by the tribunes so he he lives but his fate is in some ways worse than death he's banished from Rome so he's not thrown mm. off the Tarpeian rock but he's banished from Rome Brutus, one of the tribunes, pronounces um, pronounces the punishment in line one eighteen of three three. I-, I wonder if you could read Brutus's lines. I'm sorry to keep giving you Brutus's lines. Like why that you should be given? Let's flip it. You be Coriolanus, and I want you to read down to one twenty four. Let me read Brutus for the tribunes. You always. I what? always want to be Volumnia. You always want to be Volumnia. <laughs> When we read Volumnia's lines, you will always get Volumnia, for sure. Um, so we're reading from line one, 118, one, Brutus. Eight, yes. There's no more to be said, but he is banished as enemy to the people and his country. It shall be so. No, all the citizens. It shall be so. It shall be so. Coriolanus, you common c- cry of curs, whose breath I hate, as reek of the rotten fins, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. I banish you. 
I, this is like one of the best lines in sh- that Shakespeare ever wrote from me. He gets banished and Coriolanus's reply is, oh, I'm banished? Actually, I banish you. Like, I mean, it's just so, so brilliant because he thinks of himself as the, like, the true embodiment of Rome. The, this, like, these imposters are going to banish him? He is Rome. So what is his reply? No. I banish you. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves. And then I mean, he's banished. But the ideal, you know, he's still carrying the ideal with him, I think he believes. And so, of course, he can mm-hmm. pronounce, no, like by leaving, I'm the one who's banishing you. It's just fantastic. It shows how solipsistic he is. And there's that first person again. Yes, yes. That keeps coming back. Um, and we'll see that again in his final speech to Alphidius, how many first person pronouns there are in that speech. Yes. He, yeah, he speaks with absolute authority here. And this, as we were saying in our last episode, is what I consider to be the turning point of the play. Yes. That this is the, the pivot climactic moment. Um, so let's conclude. What are we going to look for in Act 4, Sarah Jane? Uh, I'll tell you one thing that I'm going to look for. We will find out early in Act 4 that... Of course, Coriolanus is banished, but he is going toward his enemies. He is going to meet with Aufidius, which is just a sort of shocking um, ploy that the man we last saw locked in battle tooth for tooth against Coriolanus is the man that Coriolanus is going to go... Um, approach and i am really looking forward to that meeting between those two (laughs) how is this going to go down how is coriolanus going to survive this what are you going to look for in act four um i'm interested in how coriolanus recreates himself so we have a total shift of setting to antium which is just the other place and he is now titleless Mm. he is no longer Coriolanus. He can't go with that name to Alphidius. That would be an insult. So he, he goes divested of all his titles and carves himself a new name in the embers of burning Rome, mm. I think is what Cominius says. What a Maybe great line. What a great line. Yeah. It's Cominius, I think, that says that. Um, I'm interested in images of, of him as a dragon. Uh-huh. And uh, how how he becomes a dragon and a tiger and, and this kind of monstrous automaton. And I think what he says, I banish you, rings true. And we'll see how even when he's not in Rome, everyone is talking about Coriolanus all the time. Mm. And Coriolanus's acts are still determining what happens in Rome, even though he's not there. Um, this is great. Sarah Jane, I'm looking forward to act four. Uh, I want to remind everybody how they can participate. The Close Reads podcast page on Facebook is always, I mean, there's someone writing something right now. It's become, (laughs) it's just so much fun. People post menu items and their thoughts on Coriolanus and their thought on um, the Close Reads book that we're discussing, which is now Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. So if you want to participate in the discussion, if you've got a question for Sarah Jane or me, even though Sarah Jane is not on Facebook, we'll make sure that she gets the message 
If you want to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you can do so at Close Reads Pods and via email by writing to Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. We also have an email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. For Sarah Jane Bentley and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I am Tim McIntosh. Thank you for listening and happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.